Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And we're about to reprise a conversation that I hosted uh, at the 2017 Jane Harrison Speaker Series on the importance of housing. It was about uh, the world of homeless youth in our community, which is a hidden but huge problem affecting too many thousands of children in Baltimore. Uh, and all the people from those panels uh, joined us. They came to our studios here at the Center for Emerging Media uh, over on St. Paul Street to record this for you all today. And uh, we are here with all of them. So Halani Sinclair is here. Halani is a family with, with a family reunification program, uh, part of Associated Catholic Charities of Baltimore at the Esperanza Center, working with many uh, homeless youth who are immigrant children. Good to have you in the studio, Halani. Thank you so much, Mark. Glad to be here. And Sierra Dunlop is with us. She's a peer at Yes Drop-In Center, Youth Empowerment Center. Good to have you back. Thank Steve, you. Have you here? And Malcolm Williams is with us. Malcolm is a behavior health therapist at Healthcare for the Homeless and at the Yes Drop-In Center. Malcolm, good to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you, Mark. And Ingrid Lofgren is the Homeless Youth Initiative Director at the Homeless, homeless Persons Representation, Pro- Representation Project. Good to have you here, Ingrid. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, Mark. Well, actually, is the one who wrote me into all this stuff in the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just begin. I mean, and I and I the the I think that this is a the question of homeless youth is one that doesn't get enough coverage nor understanding or play in our community and how deep and profound the problem is. And Ingrid, I mean, let me start with you just because you well, let's take a step, step backwards very quickly and very briefly. Just describe a bit about what each of you do for our listeners. Just not make it long. Just Ingrid. So, as you said, I work at Homeless Persons Representation Project, which is a nonprofit legal services provider. My role there is to provide free legal help to youth and young adults under age 25 who don't have stable housing. Um, we help them with issues mostly related to housing and income, and I also work on um, policy related to youth homelessness. And you're a lawyer. Yes. Sierra? Um, at the Yes Trapman Center, we provide services to homeless youth or youth at risk of homelessness ages 14 to 25. We pretty much try to be a one-stop shop. Um, we offer case management, uh, clothing, closet, a full pantry, and we basically have youth identify goals for themselves, and we assist them with reaching their goals and connecting to different resources to become stable. And you were a homeless young person? Yes. Yourself? Yes. That's important to say. Um, and Halani. So I work at Esperanza Center. We are a comprehensive immigrant resource center, and we provide an array of services, um, including immigration legal services. Um, we do humanitarian-based relief. For our clients, we have um, a medical clinic, so health services for the uninsured and uninsurable. We also have an educational services program um, where we provide ESL classes to both the adult and the youth. We also do offer computer literacy classes and Spanish classes for anyone looking to learn Spanish. Hmm. We have client services who um, partners with a lot of um, other organizations, and we basically try to help um, our clients with every other need that don't fall within immigration, legal services, health services, and educational services. And then just recently, we um, were able to offer family reunification services um, for recently arrived unaccompanied youth. Um, in Maryland, and we have an anti-trafficking program. So we get to that all that stuff as well. Malcolm? Yeah, um, I'm a behavior health therapist. I work uh, half-time at uh, Healthcare for the Homeless and the other half at um, the Yes Drop-In Center. So I just provide um, ongoing support and therapy for individuals struggling with depression and you know, different um, mental health disorders. And so um, they come see me through the walk-in process, or they can come and do... Um, weekly or bi-weekly appointments, and I get them connected with uh, psychiatry and like that. So I just provide the youth with uh, a lot of positive support and therapy. So let's just about the, the scope of this. And Ingrid, I mean, I, I, I turned to you first just because you're the one who contacted me first and, and uh, about this, but you're kind of the work. What, what is the scope of this in our city? So scope um, in terms of numbers is hard to get a handle on. It's something that we've struggled with as a community um, for a long time to really convey how widespread of a problem this is so that we can get the resources that we need um, to help youth. So the best data that we have is from the youth reach count. Um, In 2000. 
2015, uh, the youth reach count identified over 1,400 young people in Baltimore City who are under the age of 25, don't have stable housing, and are on their own, uh, not with a parent or guardian, although they may be parenting themselves and have their own children with them. So this is a much higher number than any of the other official counts that the city reports to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, we know also from that data that there is a very dramatic overrepresentation of African American and LGBTQ youth among that population. Um, we know that um, about 35% of these youth were parents, 22% had been involved in the foster care system, 38% had been in the juvenile justice system, and 47% had been in jail. Um, we know that common living situations of the young people who um, responded to surveys through YouthReach are staying in abandoned buildings, vacant houses, um, which a lot of people call bandos, or um, outside, uh, riding public transportation all night. Um, and many young people are also doubled up or couch surfing are terms you hear a lot, which really just means sharing housing of other people. It could be people they know, could be strangers. Um, because they don't have any place of their own. So what we know, um, because we know these youth and what's reflected in the data, is that there are a lot of young people who are really on their own, struggling, and in unsafe situations, and forced um, to make decisions that put them at risk for a lot of things, um, that put them at risk of violence and exploitation, um, labor and sex trafficking, um, risk of engaging in illicit activity, dropping out of school. Um, so all of that's a pretty bleak picture. Um, we also know um, from all of us working with youth that this is an extremely resourceful community that is networked together in really tight and important um, social relationships and networks that is extremely resilient and creative. Um, and we just need to create more space for them, like Sierra said, to reach their goals um, and to have safe, decent housing. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into some of the hidden factors here. I'm, I'm going to go to Halani Sinclair and then come over to Sierra Dunlop. And, and I'm not going to leave you out, but I'm get, you have lots to say. We can bring you right <laughs> in. But, 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 but so I'm going to talk about some of the hidden factors here because it seems to me that given the present political climate in America, um, especially in the Latino community, mm -hmm. um, where people are, are terrified of they or their parents being deported, and um, just by not even knowing what's going on, and picked up. That Latino homelessness is probably hugely undercounted and, mis and not understood how deep it is. Could you talk a bit about what we don't know, what you think is happening that we do not know? Yes. Um, so if we could just take a step back and just talk a little bit about first kind of the Latino culture and I will even venture to say kind of the, the wider immigrant culture. There's a stigma when um, you are an immigrant that you don't, you don't um, access services because you don't want to be a burden on the system. So, you know, you're fleeing, particularly for immigrants coming from Central America, you're fleeing really horrendous home country situations, a lot of violence, um, gang activity. And so if you're lucky enough um, to make the journey and come to the United States safely, then you should just be grateful that you're here. So why burden the system when Basically, you're in the land of opportunities, and you should just work hard and try to provide as best as you can for your family. So that's just kind of the stigma that goes into it. So let's just say that, sure, you, you somehow you get over that hurdle, that you recognize I am at risk for experiencing homelessness or I am um, a homeless youth. Let's just say that you do get that, get over that barrier, and then you go out and you access services. It's hugely underrepresented because if you go to certain um, organizations, certain providers, 
they may not be able to provide services to that immigrant youth because they don't understand that very specific population or they might look at the immigrant youth and think, oh, you're at the wrong place. You really should go somewhere else, somewhere where there are organizations that specify uh, that specifically provide services to your population, to your immigrant group. If they do, maybe um, the organizations try to work with the immigrant youth. There's always other barriers like language access, um, cultural competency. So, um, you know, that that's kind of a challenge, which is why I think that if the youth can even get over that initial hurdle, they may not be able to access services. I specifically specifically work with unaccompanied, um, the, the technical term is unaccompanied alien children. We refer to them as unaccompanied children or unaccompanied I hate youth. that word when you're talking about aliens. I do too. Is it like, you know, we're talking about Martians, right? Exactly. We, we, we don't use that at um, Catholic Charities Esperanza Center. But um, How many kids are we talking about, do you think, in the Latino community who are, out, or who are actually homeless or unaccompanied, not drifting, not knowing where they are? It's hard to say. It really, I mean, if I were to say a number, it would be lowballing it. Um, so I, I, I think a lot higher than we even think it is. Um, but the youth that I work with, yes, they're fleeing these horrendous situations. Some of them have been threatened by gangs in home country. So part of the reunification process is that, you know, there's an identified caregiver here in the United States, so here in Maryland, that says, yes, I will take this child in, I can provide for him or her, ensure uh, his or her safety. But sometimes what happens is when the um, unaccompanied child is reunited with their caregiver in the United States, gangs in home country get a word, you know, they, they, they hear about that, they get a hold of that, and they start, they, they can, and has happened, they, they will threaten the family. Because, you know, maybe the child is running away from something a horrible, you know, kind of gang-written village, and the gang is upset by that, that they're now in the United States. So they will threaten the family here in the United States, and that scares the children, and so they run away. Um, we see a lot of uh, our youth that are living with, you know, basically strangers or couch surfing because they're honestly trying to protect their families. So... I'm gonna come back to this because I mean, I mean and just one quick question. I'm gonna turn to Sierra Dunlap here. But so you don't want to. You don't. I hear you don't want to give a number, but in your head, in your work, in talking mm -hmm. to people, are you talking about hundreds? We're talking about thousands. Do you think? Mm. You're really reluctant to do this, aren't you? I am because <laughs> I I don't want to paint the wrong picture. Okay, cool, cool. Right, okay, I mean, I'm cool. So Sierra, let, let's talk a bit about your world. I mean, you came out of this world yourself. Yes. Right. A uh, young black woman, homeless, mm -hmm. in the streets of Baltimore. Yes. So um, I also would like to say it's definitely, it's definitely an undercount. Um, I think it was fifteen or fourteen hundred that was reported. Yeah. But I know for myself, um, when I was going through my situation, I never reported that I was homeless. And the reason why I didn't report, and the reason why so many other youth don't report, is because. The systems that are built to protect us don't normally protect us. And I had firsthand experience with being in foster care and was abused. So the system where I would go to get help, if they've already traumatized me, where am I, why would I report myself? And I see that every day and with the youth that I work with as well. Like, they are in these situations and they could possibly get help, but they don't want to reach out and report to people because they have fear that something more harmful is going to happen. So, so how deep do you think the problem is? Very deep. <laughs> so what does that mean? Um, I, think, I think it's a problem worldwide. I think that it's a problem in different communities. Um, and I feel like it's everybody's job to get involved to end youth homelessness. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it really takes a village to raise a child. I do believe in that. And um, the youth that we work with, they, a lot of them don't have parents. They don't have the support system, and that's what they need in order to be successful. So I feel like if different communities across America would just come together and unite to focus on youth issues, the, you know, the issue of youth homelessness, then we could probably solve it and end it. So, and, I'm, and, and then here before that, I'm going to dive into this next part and just kind of freeform here a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Malcolm, I mean, you, you work with, as a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, we always talk about how middle class, upper middle class kids, mostly white kids, but black or white kids who are upper middle class can can access mental health. Mm-hmm. You, like, someone's wrong with my kid, just find a therapist. That's, like, you know, get them in a group, do something. But so talk mm-hmm. about the depth of what you're seeing with these kids. Because they don't. Yeah, Unless they, you're on the scene or somebody like you is on the scene, which is not very many of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, as far as um, the proposition I work with, there's no real support. Like you said, that the parents can say, hey, here's a therapist, you're going to go to this, and here's a therapist, you're going to do this. But with the youth that I work with, um, first of all, like Sierra said, they don't trust the system. And I'm a part of the system, you know. And so... Um, so how they look at it is like this is just another um, process that I'm going to have to drudge up all this information, all this pain that I have. And, and maybe this person, you know, in the next couple of months, this person won't even be there anymore, you know, because it's a quote unquote a job, you know. And so a lot of the youth that, that come to see me are reluctant to sit down and talk about these issues. Now, um, first of all, because they are very painful issues that uh, the individuals have to deal with, the trauma that um that people go through as youth, you know, and so um they're reluctant from the lack of um of um support that they've received from the system in general. And so in a lot of instances the the youth that I work with, it's based on the they're looked upon as their behavior. You know, instead of looking past that and looking at what the individual's been through, the trauma been through. And uh, people look at it, they're looking at it as they're, they're acting out. You know, these youth are just acting out and they're misbehaving in this world. And so we don't look at what's causing it. You know, a lot of a lot of um, the systems really don't look at what's causing it. So that's why the increase of uh, incarcerations. You know, people going to jail. You know, people getting locked up for just you know petty things. And so um, the youth come in, and so like I was working for yes for like uh, close to a year. You know, before some of the youth came to me, it's like, okay, I need to talk about some problems that I have, you know, because... Because it takes time to get people's it takes, trust. Yeah, it takes time mm-hmm. to get their trust because right. they've been abused by um, sometimes family, by people in the community, and then being abused by the system, as Sierra spoke on. So let's talk about this for a minute. So mm-hmm. What do we mean when we talk abused by the system? What does that mean? I mean, you know, we look at this and people say we have a foster care system, we have a DSS system, we have a social services system, we have things for, for kids, what does it mean to be abused by the system? What, what does that mean to all of you? I mean... Oh, like... like um, come here, can, yeah, just go. Yeah, Malcolm. with me, it's like um, just being like in foster care, being in foster care and being thrown into these homes and then you look for help from the, from the, the foster care system to, to help you, but your foster parent may abuse you, you know, and so you get trapped up into this um, in this whole cycle moving on to this person and getting abused and moving on to this person. And then or just having no support from the system at all. I know you, you age out and then it's just like, okay, right. you know, we wash your hands of you, we're done with you, on to the person who haven't aged out yet, you know. And so, and and they're left out there alone with, with no real support, so. And you mm-hmm. talked about being abused in the foster care system, Sierra. Yes. I mean, I've heard some other women as well, and boys, both being sexually abused inside the system and physically abused. Yes. So what, is that, what form is that? I'm, I'm not specific form. I mean by, what does it mean? How many get, what happens? Um, in all honesty, uh, I do not know. Um, when I was when I was being abused while I was in care, um, it was no one for me to report to. How old were you? I was 11. Oh my lord. Mm-hmm. And it was no one for me to report to. And then um, I did. I was in school, of course, but I was told when I was entered into school you were that, in foster care yes that the school would report to my foster parent and to the social worker to make sure I was doing well in school and basically to give them a report so if the person that is abusing me if the school is going to report to that person I'm not going to report because it's just going to be a cycle of me getting abused all over again I don't have trust that I'm going to be taken out of that situation mm-hmm. and um, just like Malcolm said about when Children age out of foster care. I get calls practically every day from social workers from foster care saying that they have a youth who is aging out and they don't know what to do with them. 18. Can, can you give me a shelter list? And, yes, sometimes they are 18 and not 21. 
because the system says that they're done with them for whatever reason they're not compliant and you being not compliant might be you didn't go to school but you don't know why I didn't go to school I could have a learning disability but that's not investigated what they do is just say you're not compliant because you didn't show up so they discharge that's abuse to me and how do you I mean as a lawyer so um, some of the systems that I work with a lot in my legal work are the subsidized housing system and the welfare benefits system. And so um, talk about, you know, systems that are supposed to protect people. These are this is the, the safety net system that we've created to help people with their most basic survival needs, their needs for food and shelter, just basic subsistence. And we have created programs um, that are really exclusionary and oppressive. Um, we give people so little and expect them to jump through so many hoops that really um, we're not lifting people out of poverty, we're maintaining them in poverty. Um, and I see that all the time with the young people who I work with who are trying to get welfare, temporary cash assistance, and you know expected to comply with work program requirements and their living situations, their homelessness, domestic violence, um, mental health needs, other disabilities, um, all of these crises that they're dealing with are not really taken into consideration and assessed. There's no individualized response. There's really no support. There's just um, punishment. They're, you know, their benefits cases are closed or they're not able to access benefits in the first place. So these these systems uh, really are not friendly to anyone. They're certainly not friendly to a young person who might have very little experience navigating government bureaucracies, who might not have transportation or a phone or any of the the basic things that they need to be able to or a reliable mailing address. A reliable mm -hmm. mailing address. Yeah. All there are so many barriers, um, and I, you know, I look at this. And I've had so many opportunities and privileges, and I don't know if I could maintain participation in some of these programs. It really feels like people are set up to fail, um, and we can do better. We have the resources to give people what they need. What do you mean we have the resources? We're one of the richest states in one of the richest countries in the world. Um, we just need to get our priorities straight. Um, we need to design... Um, programs and use these resources in ways that are youth directed. We need to listen to young people when they tell us what they need. We need to create programs that take into consideration their developmental stage, that take into consideration experiences of trauma and how that affects people, and that don't re-traumatize them. Um, I think we know how to do this. We have the tools. Um, our young people can tell us what they need. Um, we just need to like I said, listen and reprioritize and build something very different than what we have right now. Well, do you want to chime in there a little bit? Well, I was uh -huh. just, in terms of the clients that we serve, um, when you talk about abuse and being abused by the system, I just think back to the number of times that I've had to go with our clients to the local Department of Social Services, mm. um, particularly um, we in Optimus our is over here making <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, in our anti-trafficking program I actually had a client who was experiencing homelessness and was a trafficking survivor so with that I, obviously there's a whole process that goes into place but essentially um, was awarded a certification letter that allowed her to access public benefits like a refugee if you will and um, I had kind of my suspicion that uh, the local DSS office in, in the client's jurisdiction wouldn't know what to do, um, given just all of the different factors, trafficking, um, homelessness, immigrant, language barriers. I just had a feeling, and I, and I uh, remember going with my client to the local DSS office and basically witnessing, no, we don't do that here. And I had to do a quick 10-minute training on how you do do it and if you don't know how to do it then I'm going to need you to you know get your supervisor and so to me that can be perceived as 
kind of an emotional abuse that the client experiences. You're already incredibly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You need these services. You are relying on the assistance, the public benefits, and to be told we can't help you because you simply don't really know how to help is very traumatizing. I mean, I felt very frustrated and I was just trying to be a liaison. I can only imagine um, what she was going through at the time. So, I mean, one of the things that we talk about sex trafficking for a minute and, and abuse in the system, you made a groan, right? Mm-hmm. And as Halani was speaking, you made a groan. Mm-hmm. You talked about your story. I mean, a little bit, you know, and I think that. Again, the, the extent of sex trafficking amongst, amongst kids and teenagers in our communities mm-hmm. is something we don't realize how much of it's going on in high schools every day, in middle schools. I mean, it's there. I mean, and it's pretty, it's deep. I mean, so that, that's, that's a piece of this. Those, some of these are kids who act, end up being homeless. They're not all homeless, though, who, who are being kind of sexually abused this way, right? And this is a huge, huge subterranean problem that we do not look at. And there's a very strong connection to homelessness. You know, for a lot of children and youth, the first time that they engage in any kind of what could be considered commercial sexual activity or trafficking is trading sex for shelter mm-hmm. or food. It's engaging in that activity as a basic means of survival. And that is stigmatized and criminalized. And we are pushing young people further into these really unsafe situations. Um, And we don't, you know, I think this isn't recognized enough, and we also don't recognize enough um, how much this is happening for boys and young men and transgender youth in particular and also just LGBTQ youth Mm -hmm. um, and immigrant youth. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are certain young people who we have fewer services for who mainstream services are less prepared to serve who we talk about less in our advocacy work um who are even more vulnerable so there's there's a lot to unpack there so we're going to unpack some of this and also talk about where we're going to go with this and find out what the groan was that malcolm williams behavioral therapist the healthcare <laughs> of the homeless <laughs> the s dropping center made as halani sinclair was speaking <laughs> with the family reunification programming with working with the Esperanza Center. Uh, and you just heard Ingrid Lofgren, Homeless Youth Initiative Director at, at Homeless Persons Representation Project, and Sierra Dunlop at Yes Drop-In Center. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We have much more to talk about. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. We are continuing our conversation about youth homelessness in Baltimore. Um, when we went to break, you heard the voice of Ingrid Lofgren, who is the Homeless Youth Initiative Director at the Homeless Persons Representation Project. Uh, Sierra Dunlop is with us, who's one of the leaders over at the Youth Empowerment Center. Does that have that right? The Yes Drop-In Center, uh, where she's a peer counselor and lived as a homeless youth herself. Uh, Halani Sinclair is with us. She's a family reunification program. Uh, with that program and is with the Associated Catholic Charities of Baltimore at the Esperanza Center, working with mostly Latino youth uh, in our community and many uh, who are homeless and stuck in sex trafficking, and Malcolm Williams, behavioral behavioral health therapist, excuse me, at Healthcare for the Homeless and the Esperanza Center. And talk about the groan you made <laughs> as Melanie was speaking and why you groaned when you talked. Well, no, you were speaking. Who was speaking? Oh, you were speaking. <laughs> Melanie was speaking. Yeah. Who was speaking? Um, uh, that groan was um, based off the. I, I've had to go to DSS with um, with clients before, and it's it's like a really, it's a re- really tough process. You know, it's frustrating for me. You know, and I'm kind of trained to deal with you know stressful situations, and so um, to me and this this person, it, it's it's the process is for individuals to just give up and not receive benefits. You know, and so. It's kind of like a burial. You have someone who uh, who's suffering from paranoia, who's suffering, with, you know, some psychosis. Go to the DSS office, and the person is like has like no kind of support for the individual. Just like this is what you need to do. Boom, 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 boom. Without bending a little bit to understand what they're struggling with, you know, that individual is not gonna go back. So that's gonna prevent that person from getting um, 
the cash assistance, food stamps, you know, and it's going to make it hard for you to um, to make referrals to other programs because they may feel like that individual, that particular program is going to be the same. So it kind of just kind of makes the the availability of programs in, in the city just kind of shorter simply because people can't stand up under that kind of, you know, condition. So that was, that was the groan. So... <laughs> Just to reflect a little bit on what Malcolm just said, I mean, that's really what we deal with in our legal work. You know, what he said, bending the rules to make it possible for them to access, that's Mm -hmm. called a reasonable accommodation, and it's something (laughs) that someone's entitled to under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's exactly, exactly the kind of thing that, um, you know, the Department of Social Services and other government programs are, are required to do. They're required to accommodate people, to change the rules, to provide support so that people with disabilities have equal access and equal opportunity to participate. And so this is another barrier that comes up a lot. Um, And a lot of youth, you know, might not be able to access mental health services for a lot of the reasons that Malcolm and Sierra talked about earlier, might not have a diagnosis, might not know what a reasonable accommodation is. I mean, who would? Mm-hmm. might not know the magic words to use or have an advocate. And so it just ends up in them being excluded and less likely to access housing and income. And, and, and then you have individuals just are triggered easily, you know, and when someone's triggered, you know, they just kind of um, become upset, can start, you know, become very upset about things. And so, if someone comes becomes upset, you don't think about, okay, what triggered this? What happened? What's going on behind this anger? It's like security, call mm-hmm. the police. Then we start criminalizing. Get them out of here. And then, yeah, and the criminalization process begins. begins. Yeah, because yeah, one of the things you said, I think we said in the beginning, in the 47% of these kids have been incarcerated. Exactly. And which is a huge number of kids we're talking about here being incarcerated and how that leads to homelessness as well. So let's talk a bit about, I mean, I know the work you do is critical, and you put a dent in the system with your advocacy work, and you wrap your arms around these children and kind of really do really important work to helping them get through what they're getting through. Mm-hmm. But I also know, having been there myself, this is a, can be very frustrating work because you're seeing what you're up against, the roadblocks you have in helping young people kind of get through. So what has to be done? What changes that? I mean, we know there's this massive thing we have to do to change the nature of what this society does and to end poverty and the desolate neighborhoods people come from and what's happening with our immigrant children and, 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 and the rest. But meanwhile, as we're struggling to change that, what do we have to do to end what we, what we face? I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time when there was no homelessness in America. Mm-hmm. Right? Before Ronald Reagan came in, there were no homeless kids, very few. There were very few homeless people, other than people who were seriously alcoholics or drug addicted. There were very few homeless people. We had neighborhoods. So, I mean, what? So, of course, we know that. So, there's that, that's, that chasm. So, what do we do? What do, you, what, what do you want to see done that changes this dynamic for our children? Sierra, go ahead. Well, I think systems reform is what we need and a housing first model. I think that if we put youth in housing, no barriers, just put them in the housing and once they're in the housing... What do you mean when you say no barriers? Why do you say that? If, that they, if they don't have an ID, they still deserve a roof over their head. If they don't have um, medical documents saying that they have a disability, they still deserve to be in a house. If they don't have all the documents and shot records for their children, they still deserve a nice, safe place to go to at night to call home you know everybody deserve housing is a right to me everybody mm-hmm. should have a house mm-hmm. so I think we put them in a house with no barriers and then once they're in housing assess the barriers that they have and all of the needs that they have and um, I think we need systems reform like just food stamps let's just start there that's just the bare minimum you know people shouldn't have to jump through loops and hoops and all of that in order to get food stamps so if we work on policy change and reform that whole system, then that'll be easier for homeless youth, well, for people to access, period, because let's just be honest, it's not that just youth that have an issue accessing these systems, it's everybody who qualifies or it should be, you know, 
Um, I think that's what we need, systems reform and housing first. What are you about to say, Helene? Uh, I, I didn't know how deep you wanted to go, but I basically <laughs> I wanted to say, I mean, uh, we're dealing with systematic oppression mm. of, of, of certain communities. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's kind of the answer that you were looking for, but if you just I, look I, around I'm not, at I'm not looking for whatever you want yeah, to say. Yeah, I'm just, I, you know, if you just look in certain communities, the resources that are available for certain community groups. You know, let's talk about just access to healthy, quality food. Sometimes mm-hmm. you go through, you know, a number of blocks before you see a grocery store. Let's just say they can access food stamps. Where are they going to be able to use their mm-hmm. food stamps? Um, that's that's a systematic way of oppressing certain folks, I think, in my mind. If you look at certain uh, educational school systems, I mean, some of the schools that we're sending our kids to, I'm horrified by, and I'm not the only one. There's been a number of um, uh, media stories done about certain schools in the state of Maryland compared to other neighborhoods. Um, I, that's I, I wanted to just kind of put that out there. That mm-hmm. is just years of systematic oppression of certain communities. Mm-hmm. And you deal, deal daily with the law aspect of this, legal aspect. Yeah, and so to... Um, kind of segue from what both Sierra and Halani said, which I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, There are certainly and have been for a very long time laws that create and perpetuate that oppression and create and perpetuate um, racial and economic segregation and this deep level of disinvestment that Halani was referencing. Um, So we need you know, major investment in affordable housing, and we need to make those investments in ways that um, reverse this process of segregation that we've seen for so long, and that is certainly very evident in Baltimore City and in our metropolitan region. Um, One specific example of a legal remedy um, that would further housing choice residential mobility, um, racial and economic desegregation, uh, is the HOME Act. There's been a bill in the Maryland legislature for years that would prohibit landlords from discriminating against renters in the private rental market based on the lawful source of their income. So, you know, right now, landlords can refuse to rent to a housing choice voucher holder, a Section 8 voucher holder, just because they receive government rental assistance. Uh, There are landlords who will take Section 8 vouchers in certain properties that they own and not in others that are in different geographic areas, which I think makes clear that, you know, they're segregating voucher holders who in this area are predominantly black families in, you know, substandard housing in weaker rental markets where there's less less access to quality education, employment, transportation, food, all these amenities that Halani was referencing. So that's just one example, but we we know what to do, right? We know that we could pass the HOME Act and we haven't done it. Uh, so we could start there. I would like to see that happen. You know, go ahead, Malcolm. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and just to piggyback off uh, what Sierra said about housing, um, yeah, that is such an important component in, in what we do. Because people, like, who's not going to be depressed living out on the street? You know, living in abandoned buildings. You know, um, receiving, getting arrested for burglary because you're living in an abandoned house. Right. You know? People go um, to jail for two or homeless. three years because they're living in a house that's abandoned and they're charged with breaking and entering mm-hmm. and they go to jail mm-hmm. for two or three years. That's insane. Yep. It is. It is insane. And then you come out, you can't get a job, you can't mm-hmm. get public benefits. So you, what do you do? You go back to the underground economy because mm-hmm. what else can you do? No. You have yeah. to survive. I'm getting Absolutely. Start here in a minute. I can't do it on the air. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you... <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's basically against the law to be homeless, you know, in this country, and that, and that, that is a sad thing, especially when a lot of people who are homeless is because of this system that we live in, um, and so that we live in, and so it's, it's very frustrating that you know how things are going. But housing it would be such a key component in that because people get to 
wake up, that people get to sleep, you know, people get to have a place, you know, where they don't have to, they, they can kind of take that anxiety down of what's going to happen. I have people uh, living in, I have youth living in abandoned buildings who have people run up in there and rob them or run up in there and, and take the abandoned building from them and beat them up, you know, stuff like that. And so it's like... And sexually abuse them. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you're, you like, hyper-vigilant all the time, you know? And so, yeah, I can help these individuals develop coping skills, help them, help them process the trauma that they've been through. But until we get them off of the street and into a stable environment, they're still going to be um, in survival mode. And survival mode is by any means necessary. Whatever I have to do to survive, you know, if it means... Um, robbing someone, if it means like panhandling on the street corner, you know, whatever you got to do to survive, you're going to have to do it. You know, I have you said that I've done a lot of stuff just to live, you know, and so I'm I'm trying to get away from that, but, you know, I don't want to go back out there, so I'm here to try to get some help because, you know, you know, the, the, the community says that you guys can help me with things, so I'm here, and I don't want to do those things anymore. So, yeah, housing is so important. And racism, like Alania said, is just, you know, it's so prevalent. And a lot of people like to say that the system is broken. But I like to say the system's working like a well or a machine because it's doing exactly what it's supposed, what it's built to do. You know, so what we have to do is we have to do that. And that comes with a revolution. <laughs> a revolution. Simple yeah. as that, you know. The other R word. No, yeah, the other <laughs> R word. You get me, though, Jamal. <laughs> and not to, to bring it down, but, Mark, you talked about modern mass homelessness and how you remember a time when that didn't exist before President Reagan started to systematically, intentionally disinvest in government-subsidized affordable housing. And we have just seen this week the biggest cuts since Reagan right. in... The budget of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Proposed Mm -hmm. cuts, yeah. And so if there were a time for this revolution, (laughs) I mean, we're really, we can look back to history and see how we got to where we are. And we are in the process of making some choices that are going to dig that hole so much deeper. And I think, you know, many people are aware of that. And we, we really need to push. We need to push back now. So, how do we wrap our heads around, I mean, our arms around this now? You know, I mean, there's, I mean, we, we live in a, in a world that can be very divided, mm-hmm. right, on so many levels. And so, not exclusively, but primarily in the city of Baltimore, let's say, this affects black children and immigrant Latino children. Mm-hmm. And often, even those communities are separated from one another mm-hmm. in terms of any kind of unity for lots of complex reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so uh, how do we begin to kind of cross that divide and change things? What do you think happens? I mean, how do the, yes, kids are primarily African-American. Yes. Many of them are LGBTQ kids, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Lots, I mean, lots of gay, lesbian, transgender kids are in the street, queer kids are in the street. Mm -hmm. Um, Kicked out by their families because they can't stand the fact they're straight parents that mm-hmm. have these children for a lot of other complex reasons. Latino kids who just have nowhere to turn because they don't want to be sent back to Honduras or Guatemala mm-hmm. or wherever it is they come from to the gangs and what they face there. Mm-hmm. A lot of which came out of American policy. We, we'll, we'll go there tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go? <laughs> we, don't we, don't, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> so, I mean, so how, is it, can, can you, how would you bridge that gap? And then I'm going to talk about the laws and how you think you change the system between the two of you. But I mean. So, I mean, the first thing that I would um, challenge anyone um, that is just listening or wants to learn more is, is be open and ready to have the real conversation. That's, mm-hmm. you know, don't try to paint a pretty picture or um, a less than perfect picture. You have to look at the reality that's in front of you because if you are really paying attention, you don't even have to look hard enough, but if you're paying attention... It's right there. It's in front of you. Um, But more on on a practical level, you know, we have to challenge ourselves in assessing our programs, our services, our organizations. Are we providing services that are sensitive, um, uh, have linguistic diverse capabilities, 
Are we um, culturally competent in the services that we provide? If my organization, my program, were to have a client, a black youth client come in, am I ready to help that person? Same thing as the Yes Center gets an immigrant youth that doesn't speak English. Are they ready to provide services to that individual? Um, so you really have to do an assessment of the services that, that, that you're providing and, and challenge the program, the services, or organization in a way that if, if it's not, what can we improve? Um, mm -hmm. And that's gonna happen through collaboration. Mm -hmm. So if I don't think that I'm to totally equipped with a certain population, I'm going to reach out, and I should be reaching out to organizations that have expertise in that particular um, community group. Only through those, I think, really opening your eyes and being ready to build collabor collaborative efforts and networks are our systems going to improve the systems that should be helping our youth? And I would just agree with everything that Halani just said. Mm -hmm. I actually was going to call you because <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working with the youth and I feel like I've exhausted everything that I can do for this youth. And I feel like you may be able to help them a little bit more, but I just want to reach out to you, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and see what you can do for this person because I know that we have exhausted everything mm -hmm. with y'all. And I think, you know, Sierra just recognized something that she doesn't have or a need to reach out, right? Unfortunately, many of us and many of our organizations don't know what we don't know. Um, speaking as a white person in this group um, who is housed and of a certain um, economic class um, and looking around at my organization and the nonprofit community and the number of nonprofits um, that are white-led with white boards, um, I think we need to, um, you know, accept that we might not know what we don't know, and we need to listen more to the people um, who, are we, who we're supposed to be serving, um, people who are affected by things like homelessness um, and systemic structural racism listen to them, support them, um, work in support of their leadership, um, create opportunities for leadership within our organizations and systems, and reach out for help, like Sierra just did, in doing the kind of honest assessment that Halani just talked about, because we might not be able to really do that for ourselves, um, and our good intentions about that are simply not good enough. And if I could just add one more thing, I, I think it's really important that we approach um, our, our work through a strength-based model. Um, so just because we were talking about it earlier, if we're talking about you know the local DSS office, recognize that, that you have someone who was strong enough that day to come to your office and ask for assistance. That's not easy to do when you've been turned down many times, when you've been abused by the system many times. The fact that they got up in the morning and have been through so much, even probably just to get there, recognize that as a strength mm -hmm. and build build on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, so you know, as we wind down here a little bit, I mean, I, I, I'm always inspired by those of you in my studio who do this work day in and day out because I think it's incredibly important work to do. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think when I listened to you, Malcolm, was how part of the Battle House has to be to de-bureaucratize the system. Right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean it can't spend the money spending and more, but if it was more based in community mm -hmm. and you didn't have to leap through hoops to get your kids help, I mean, that's being blocked by every bureaucratic wall and measured, as you are, we're talking about, that's a big piece of this, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How you make council people, delegates, mayors, understand they got to change the way the system works. And mm -hmm. I think they can do it if, we had, if they had the will. Mm -hmm. Do you? Um, do, I <laughs> <laughs> do I think that they, that they could change if they, had, if, if they wanted to? Yeah, um, yeah. I think if they wanted to change, that they can change. But are they willing to to make that change? Just the key, and I think it's important for us just to keep fighting. You know, 
regardless of what's going on, regardless of knocking our head up against the wall. It's just to keep fighting, you know, keep shining the light on what we see on a day-to-day um, in the community. And like Helene said, just the reality, you know, don't sugarcoat it, you know, like that it doesn't really exist, but just to shine the light on it's like, look, this is here. This is what's going on here in Baltimore City, and something has to be done. And we're not going to stop. We're going to keep fighting for those who um, find it hard to fight for themselves. You know, and, that, and that's that's what's important to me. I've been fighting this fight for ever since I was born. <laughs> you know, so and I'm going to continue. And so my job is to is to continue to raise awareness of it, to, to, to take my voice into places where my youth may not be uh, able to go themselves and then and letting them let them the message of the people know what's happening. So, yeah. Only have about a minute or so left. I'd just like to say quickly um, that the most transformative moments I've seen with decision makers um, being influenced to change the system is when they hear from youth directly about the experiences that we've been talking about. So, Mark, maybe... Uh, you want to have a show with uh, four young people to talk about these issues so on. that we can keep shining Malcolm's light. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bring them I to like us, or we go to them. Either way, right. you know. I mean, I would love to see you bring black Latino kids together who are in the street together in one place, and we'll come tape mm-hmm. them. I'll bring them in here to the studio. However, we work it. No, they have to hear those voices. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have to hear the children themselves. You know, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I would just say that um, given their given many of our youth's um, lawful status or lack thereof, if there's there's a greater risk for them to mm-hmm. be out and kind of very outspoken. So for those of us that can use our voice to advocate for them and to continue the good fight, like Malcolm said, let's do it. Let, let's advocate for them. And, you know, let's contact our legislators, our local and our state legislators, so that they don't forget who we are fighting for and who sh- they should be fighting for because they're representing the constituents in their respective district. Quick final. I just oh, wanted to say that Sarah um, Dunlop. our young people are just so resilient mm-hmm. and you know they go through crisis every day. They are surviving on the streets and like Alani said, I mean just making it to the VSS office is a success. I think <laughs> yeah. we need to redefine success. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks a bunch of different ways. It's not always you walking across the stage to get a degree or something like that. It's surviving every mm-hmm. day for our youth is successful. Mm-hmm. Sarah Dunlop is a peer and also leader of the Yes Dropping Center here in Baltimore. Uh, you heard Alani Sinclair just before that. She's with the Family Reunification Program, uh, the Associate Black Char- <laughs> Associate Catholic Charities, excuse me, at the Esperanza Center. Uh, Malcolm Williams is behavioral health therapist at Healthcare for the Homeless and the S Drop-In Center. Ingrid Lofgren is the Homeless Youth Initiative Director at the Homeless Persons Representation Project. Good to have you all four here. Thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you for having us, Mark. Thank you. Mark Steiner's show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlika. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. If you're a source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, a voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. 